0: After looking in depth at all the problems in the UK rental market, we are on to the solutions phase of the series. We've already looked at one possible route out of our housing hell. That was the mass building of social housing, a la Vienna. In the next episode, I'll address a couple more possible solutions, respectively, those proposed by the economist Henry George and those offered by a movement called the Yimby's. that, though, I wanted to share a conversation I had with Duncan Weldon about the role of supply and demand in the housing market, as it's very relevant to both of those movements. Duncan Weldon is the author of 200 Years of Muddling Through, the surprising story of Britain's economy from boom to bust and back again. He also writes on the substack Value Added. One bit of lingo I'll need to introduce before the conversation is that of the YIMBY, YIMBY stands for Yes In My Backyard, and YIMBYs pitch themselves as the opposite of NIMBYs. NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard. NIMBY is usually a pejorative label. People don't describe themselves as NIMBYs. Um, It's applied to people who oppose development in the places where they live. YIMBYs want more development. Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will give you access to all the episodes in this series and to future ones. And it helps make this show possible. We're only funded by our patrons. The other thing that would help the show, which I haven't asked um, our audience to do yet, is to give us a review on whichever podcast app you're listening on. Give us five stars if that's what you think we deserve. And a written review is also very, very helpful. We really would appreciate that. One of the discussions we've been having in this podcast series a lot is whether uh, the price of rental housing, the unaffordable price of rental housing for many people, especially in you know, the, big, the big cities, is that because of a lack of supply or is that because of demand side issues and essentially the distribution of housing um, not being particularly fair or Rational, I suppose, is another way you could put it. So, where do you sit on that? Is this a supply issue or a demand issue when it comes to the price of rental housing?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to give you a very economist on the one hand, this on the other hand, that answer. Yeah, I'd start by saying yeah, it's really important when we're looking at the housing crisis in Britain to understand that the housing crisis exists in some form everywhere, but it takes very different forms. So, you know, in in London, in other big cities, it's about unaffordable rent in You know, um, other parts of the country, it's about a lack of family housing. It's about types of housing. It's about tenure. It varies. Um, In terms of what's happened with house prices over the last 30-odd years, I think, you know, the single biggest thing that has happened is that interest rates have been very, very low. You know, we went from having interest rates 5% plus to having interest rates under 1%. Um, And if you can... Borrow more at a much lower cost, you can afford to spend more and a bit up the price of assets, not just houses, a bit up the price of all sorts of different financial assets. But the one we care about, because it impacts more people, is houses. So we saw this big move in house prices. Um, and that just priced lots of people who otherwise would have bought a house out of the market. Now, you really see that when you look at the the age of renters in London since the 90s. I mean, it, it really wasn't, you know, it's not too much of a caricature to say, you know, in the 90s, the private rented sector was sort of like a waiting room. You, you know, you, after you left school or university, you spent a few years there until you got a mortgage and had the joys of you know being responsible for your own boiler. But sort of the stay in that waiting room has just got longer and longer and longer, and we're seeing increasingly people in their thirties, in their forties, still in the private rented sector. We're seeing more and more family with children in the private rented sector, which really was not a thing in the um, as le- you know as recently as the mid nineteen nineties. It was tiny, and you know we're also just you know, while we're on the topic, I think we're storing up a huge problem for the future here, that the government hasn't really taken on board, which is. You know, we are 10, 15, 20 years at most away from substantial numbers of people hitting retirement age and still being in the private rented sector. And we're not used to that. We're used to either retirees being owner occupiers who have paid off their mortgage or living in the social housing sector in council houses. You know, the welfare state is not set up to cope with this. What we'll see is either a huge increase in pensioner poverty or an explosion in the housing benefit bill.
0: And as for the cause of that, I mean, is that because, you know, house prices went up, people are pushed out of, of that market, there's sort of more people chasing fewer properties in the private rental sector, if they just build more houses, would that have solved the problem? I mean, on the supply demand question, what, what is to blame for this? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think you've got, you've, got, you've got this big move in interest rates, which happens globally, and that pushes up asset prices, it pushes up house prices, but it pushes them up at a different pace. Which tells you, you know, the fact that house prices have gone up so much more in London than in the northeast of England, and you know, the last time I checked, the interest rate's the same in the northeast of England. Tells you it's not purely, um, it's not purely an interest rate story. I think it's also a supply of housing story, and it's been particularly hard to build in London and the southeast, and also around many other cities. You know, very very tough. Planning regime in Britain, which gives much more power to existing residents than potential future residents. Almost everyone has a veto on this. It's very politically unpopular. MPs think and councillors think to, to build, it annoys their most vocal residents, the most vocal voters. So we've seen a, you know an undersupply of physical building of houses. And I think on top of all of that, you know, we are really Feeling the consequences of sort of the decline of the social sector of council housing in the 1980s. Because, you know, you step back, you know, the private rented sector in Britain was a really big thing before the Second World War. And then it essentially goes away after the war. You've got increasing home ownership and you've got a large council, local authority owned social rented sector. It's not really until the 80s that you start to see that, you know, the right to buy happens. You see a switch from social renting to private ownership. And then starting in the 90s, the people who are sort of entering the housing market for the first time, have fallen through the cracks. They can't afford to buy a property yet. There isn't the social housing that would have been there for them 20 years before. So they start to rent, and every privately. And year by year, the private rented sector starts to grow again. This thing that, you know, had been almost dead by the 70s starts to grow again in the 90s till, you know, 30 years on, we are where we are.
0: And it seems intuitive to me how low interest rates and changes to the financial system and the mortgage market would affect the price of houses um, you know, f- for buyers. It's less clear to me the mechanism by which that feeds through into higher rents, because obviously when you're renting a house, you, know, you can't pay higher rent because interest rates are lower. Interest rates don't have any effect on me as a, as a renter. So how, how do those two things interact? How has low interest rates and free credit, not for cheap credit, meant that renters have had to pay more? Yeah so we've seen we've seen a
1: wedge over the last 10 15 years of you know lower costs for owner occupiers mortgage holders um, that, but no saving for um, renters and, yeah, it's just, it, it's it's purely a market power thing isn't it that you know um, people need somewhere to live close to their their employment um, so if you own somewhere you're prepared to rent out you can charge more than you know what the you you, you can charge more than you otherwise would because you, you have that market power
0: So to be clear, low interest rates lead to high house prices, and high house prices give landlords market power because the people renting from them have no alternative, right? So even if it's easy to get a mortgage, you need a massive deposit, and they can't get the deposit, they can't buy a home, that means they're a captive market to those landlords.
1: Yeah, in economic terms, you know, this would be called extracting economic rent. And usually when we talk about economic rent, it's not actually about rent. But in this this case, it is, um, you know, they can extract more than they would otherwise, because they've got they've got the power in this relationship. You know, I mean, economics is very rarely about sort of a bloodless interaction of a demand and a supply curve, you know, power matters.
0: What do you make of the people who just say, look, it's supply and demand. And what we need to do is massively Loosen the planning system. The problem from the start was the fact that it's too difficult to build houses. If we just let developers build wherever they want on the green belt, um, we need to stop the nimbys, etc. What if we just say, look, markets, you run wild, you build as much as you want, and that will ultimately bring down house prices and rent. What would you respond to that? Any truth to it? Any any problems with that argument? So, look, there's some truth to it, and I think things would be better
1: if it was easier to build. In this country, that's not just housing, it's infrastructure, it's all sorts of things. Um, is it a solution, though? Well, perhaps not. The extent that you know the amount of housing you would have to build to make a material impact on rents and house prices would be a very, very high one. Um, you know, in the end, interest rates rising as they are should help lower house prices. We should be building more. We should be building the right kind of things. Um, I think there's a sort of a... The, there's a problem as well, isn't there? About you know where we could be building. You think of um, you know a city like London. You know you, you could build much more in the green belt around London. It's completely unclear to me what impact that would have on flats in Zone Two and Zone Three, um, where you know we've got an acute crisis at the moment. Could you do more to sort of densify bits of London? Probably yes. You know building up more um but that's obviously going to be an even more contentious battle i think than um some of these other planning ones
0: Yeah, because people already live there I often, when i hear the densification argument which i find attractive i like dense cities i've lived in madrid for a while it's much nicer that you could walk to much you know obviously you can walk around london but everyone you knew lived quite close because it's a small city and everyone's living vertically but then i think of my parents a, a terraced house in in leighton i'm like well, would they? I mean, they like their house. <laughs> you know, that street definitely could be denser. But I mean, how do you get from that to a denser city? It's very um, difficult. Uh, I question, mean, it's the weird
1: thing that you know. I mean, I think it is worth taking seriously, whether we like it or not. That sort of you know, in economic terms, the revealed preference of British people is that they prefer not dense living if they can. Um, you know, people generally, in, in, in aggregate, seem to like a bit of their own outdoor space rather than a communal park. They seem to. Um, prefer generally houses to flats Um, this this is what British people have chosen when they can when they're given the choice um, for the last few decades so it probably is worth taking that seriously
0: although I mean there are a lot of people in well I live in Hackney there are a lot of people my age in Hackney who would you know give their arm and a leg to have a flat in a block of flats and to just live there themselves and to not pay extortionate rent to live in a tiny room Um, I want to talk about I suppose the other barrier to increasing supply so you've got the planning system which you know i think some people probably overstate the the restrictiveness of it but clearly it makes building properties more expensive than it might otherwise be and you know completely makes it impossible in some places you've then also got the interests of developers which people often suggest is not aligned with building more houses and especially i suppose even more than that potentially the interests of of landowners whose whose interests are not aligned with selling that as soon as possible so it can be built on what do you make of that argument that sort of the interests of the potential house builders do developers want to build more homes or are they happy to let them trickle out at quite a slow pace?
1: I think it varies depending on where we are in the market cycles. So they, I mean, they were really keen to build in sort of 2019, 2020, 2021 in particular as, the, you know, as, as houses were selling um, very quickly and at very high prices. They just want to get more supply on the market they could sell. You know, As we move into 2022, you know, potential housing market downturn in 2023, you know, I think we'll see a lot of those projects slowing down. Because the last thing you want to do if you're a big developer is, you know, dump a load of new units onto a weak market, which is already falling. When if you think, look, if we just slow this work down, wait another 18 months, we might get more for them. So I think it varies over time. I think one problem is we do really have a, you know, sort of the housing development market in Britain right now um you know has become very concentrated over the last 20 odd years you know if you go back to the 80s the 70s you had many more sort of small builders medium-sized builders focused on a particular region a particular city whereas now we're sort of in a big five or six national picture which obviously gives them a lot more market power and also the structure of the industry in britain certainly when it comes to flats in cities has encouraged um, sales to off-plan sales to overseas buyers for rent you know, i mean this is it's possibly too much for your podcast but one thing i'm fascinated about is if you know if you go to a new build estate built by you know, barrett or Persimmon or whoever taylor wimpy whoever you happen to go what, what's really striking with on these new build estates is you'll have part of the estate where there are people already living there and you'll go to the end of the street and there'll be bulldozers and cranes and they're still building and you know they love these sort of developments because you can sell them as they're finished you can 't straight away to people that will live there you can 't do that for a block of flats because you, know, you can 't have someone living in the ground floor whilst you 're still building the floor above them so they they you know building a housing estate you know you tend to sell them to people who are going to live there when you 're building a block of flats, given you know it 's going to take you. 12 months, 18 months, two years, how much it is. Because you can't move people in one by one, it's very hard to sell them in advance to many people who are actually going to live there. So you tend to end up selling them um, to landlords and overseas investors.
0: I suppose there is also, I mean, the way you've described that in the interest of developers, they don't want to put a bunch of properties on the market when it's weak, because that would crash house prices and make rents lower. Now, if what I want is to crash, not necessarily crash them, because that would be very dysfunctional for sort of the the economy as a whole. But I want house prices to go down potentially gently. I want rents to go down, hopefully more dramatically. Um, That's not going to happen then from these private developers, is it? You need someone like the state to say, look, the market's weak. This is precisely the time that we should be flooding the market because presumably it's a bit cheaper to buy the you know, the Construction material and potentially a bit cheaper to buy the land i 'm not sure that's a slightly more complicated market, I think, but I mean, what do you make of that argument that only the state can build the houses at the right times that it would actually have an effect on on prices
1: no i think' it's, there's there's definitely something in that, and you know i mean the 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 house building sector in Britain is dominated by Large profit making companies, and that you know th- th- that's fine thats that's what they do you know they have a profit motive that's you know sort of in their DNA um, obviously, the housing market though um it would be better if there was more social housing. It would be better if there were more um, cheaper rents available, ideally with longer term tenures. All sorts of economic good that comes from this, by the way, in terms of making labor more mobile and um, increasing productivity, it's, it, these are all good things. It, I mean, it strikes me as there's an obvious role for the state in providing um, that housing, particularly when you, know, you get yourself into this market failure territory, when exactly when we need more housing for tenants, the private sector isn't providing it, you know, the argument becomes stronger. Do
0: you think there's potentially a political economy argument that too many homeowners is a bad thing? So you look at, you know, people often talk about, I mean, I know there's problems at at the moment, lots of disquiet in Berlin, for example, but people often talk about Germany as, as the place where it's the best place to be a private renter. And you can point to a bunch of sort of policies and sort of have a technocratic answer why that's the case. But you can also say, well, the majority of people are renters. So obviously the government has to respond to the interests of renters. In this country, the government, because there's a majority of homeowners and they live particularly in sort of swing constituencies, the interests of homeowners are always sort of prioritised and therefore we have constant housing bubbles and the sort of 30% of outsiders, people who can't enter that market, have very little political sway. Do you think we should, for... Political economy reasons aim to have fifty-one percent of renters, so that we don't have property owners distorting the market and distorting—sorry, not distorting the market, distorting our political system to the extent that they currently do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely true that you know, once home ownership passes fifty percent in the early seventies, we then get persistent house price growth. You know, maybe that's coincidence, but suddenly the alignment of um, you know a simple majority of voters and house price growth. Um, you know, comes together in the early seventies. I think mean, it is a political economy problem. It's a classic insider-outsider problem because it's not just that they are the majority. It's as you say that I mean they're more likely to vote as well. They're more likely to vote in the right places, so they have disproportionate political powers. Yeah, it's certainly yeah, it's a classic political economy problem. Here you've got a group with vested interest who are exercising their political power to look after their vested interest. Um, how you go about turning that around, I think is, I think is quite hard. I mean, I suspect the answer is both in terms of providing good alternative council or social housing, and in terms of making the private rented sector a more attractive place to to live. In. I mean, you know, the, the starting point there for me. I mean, at the moment in some areas it's around price, but I think in the medium term the starting point has to be around security of tenure rather than um, anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've been looking a lot at the, the NIMBY, not the NIMBY movement, sorry, the YIMBY movement, which I do think actually has a lot of good points to make. But I've been trying to sort of put this on a political spectrum. And obviously the YIMBYs, I mean, there are left YIMBYs, but lots of the YIMBYs are, seem to be a faction of, of the Conservative Party or a faction of sort of that wing of, of right wing think tanks. And one of my analyses of it is is they essentially want to keep the system as it is, but they recognise that the support for the system as it is, is eroding because it was based on I suppose you could potentially call it mobility, mobility between being a tenant and a homeowner, and enough of the population feeling that they can experience the benefits of rising property prices. And, you know, I don't think their solutions are going to work for the bottom 30%, but I think maybe that's not their intention. What they want to do is shore up the 70% homeowner majority. So there is no. Threat to the the property ownership model that we currently have in this country. I don't know what you think of my conspiracy theory that the yimbys might not explain uh, as what motivates them, but potentially explains a sort of coalition which is being formed there. And it's clearly a sort of internal factional battle within the Conservative Party and the Conservative Coalition itself as well.
1: So I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that on three levels. I'm gonna start with the the first level, which is I think lots of these yimbys are, yeah, you know, they, they passionately want more building, and you know they are fundamentally. Um, free market, smaller liberal types who don't like planning restrictions because, you know, that's not what happens in a free market. You know, it, it interferes with um, interferes with stuff they believe in. Secondly, I think, yeah, I mean, strategically, you know, Margaret Thatcher's um, right to buy was, you know, one of the most successful policies in political economy terms of any government in the last you know, 50, 60 years. You know, it helps expand that conservative voter base by making more asset owners. And you know, the problem they've had, particularly in the last 20, 25 years, is you know that, that base of homeowners, this natural conservative coalition, has stopped growing. They're they're trying to help to buy. It helped at the margins. It made quite a big impact in lots of the seats we now have to call the red wall, apparently. Um, you know, and I think we, that that's probably where policy will head now. Something helped to buy, like, some sort of mortgage guarantee. But stepping back specifically to um, sort of the Yimbus, I mean, there's a, very, there's a very interesting type, isn't there, of sort of, you know, graduates, smaller liberal in their economics, probably conservative voting, um, you know, favors lower taxes, favors a small estate and has now hit their 30s and realized they can't afford to buy a house in Zone 2. And, you know, I think that's fundamentally what drives this this radicalization. And, you know, what I worry about is you go, you know, even if you get complete deregulation of planning, um, I think people in their 30s are still going to struggle to buy the nice flat they think they should be entitled to own in Zone 2 or Zone 3. Um, I mean, it all sometimes sounds like this sort of cry of anger from free market economists who've been forced to live in Zone 5.
0: Well, so, you know, I'm, I'm making this podcast because I want to pay lower rent in Hackney. They're making their political movement because they want to buy a spacious property in 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 Zone 2. Let's see who gets their political ambition fulfilled soonest, uh, subscribe to Crash Course at patreon.com forward slash Crash Course Pod. Let's talk about the party politics of this. Let's start with Michael Gove. So he's he's once again the housing minister in cabinet and it's often reported he's actually quite serious about solving the housing crisis, potentially dislikable in other ways. Um, But when it comes to um, housing. What what do you make of him?
1: Yeah, I mean the first thing to say is he is widely regarded by civil servants and people in NGOs or whatever in whichever organi whichever policy area he's covered as an effective minister, which they don't say about everyone. In that, you know, whatever you think of his ideas, he's quite good at actually getting them done. which um, not every minister is. And yes, I mean certainly people I know in the housing sector have sort of breathed a sigh of relief at him being back in the job after a, a few weeks when it was unclear. So someone that understands the sector who already knows it, who has ideas about what he wants to do is a good thing. Now, whether or not, and yes, I mean, I think it is fair to say, he seemed to be coming to a, you know, not not traditionally conservative position on tenants' rights. You know, um, he wanted to end no-fault evictions, wanted to look at ways of reforming tenure, was looking um all of that sort of stuff. Now, whether that agenda now gets picked up or whether it doesn't, I don't know. Um, he is certainly someone thoughtful in terms of, of the strategic approach to making more homeowners, which I think you know he recognises is in the Conservative Party's long-term interest. What does that look like? I mean, I suspect it looks like something that looked very like Help to Buy in the early 2010s, some sort of government backing for mortgages. You know, towards the tail end of um, Boris Johnson's um, administration. Uh, it's a very American term. Towards the tail end of Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister, you know, there was lots of talk of you know, how can we bring back 95 and 98% loan-to-value mortgages. Um, one reform which has sort of been knocking around Conservative think tank land for quite a while, and around government policy discussion, which I think we probably will see some move on, is trying to introduce more 25 and 30-year fixed mortgages. Um, Because, you know, Britain is quite a weird country that the typical mortgage is two or five years, then it resets. In theory, if you can get people 25 or 30-year mortgages because they know what the payments are going to be for the entire lifetime of the mortgage, you don't need to put as many stress tests on them about what if interest rates rise, whatever. That should lower the cost of mortgages to first-time buyers. If you combine that with some sort of government scheme to help people make up their deposit, you probably can. You probably can help some more people onto the housing ladder. Not every tenant, by far, but you can probably make, you know, tens of thousands of more first-time buyers every year than you would have otherwise.
0: And so, for the Conservative Party, I mean, it's, it seems obvious to me why they want uh, a solid majority of the population, a super a solid supermajority of the population, actually, to be to be homeowners. The Labour Party, at their most recent conference, came out with a target of seventy percent homeowners. Sort of the, the the target wasn't about affordability. It was how many people are living in each tenure. Why, from the perspective of a Labour Party strategist, would you care about seventy percent of people being homeowners? Why why is that a good thing to be to be promising?
1: Yeah, I don't think that's a strategic call. I think it's a I think it's a a, a call driven by the political cycle. You know, what I find is fascinating is even when you talk to you know sort of um, homeowners, one of their what one worry that you get expressed quite a lot from older homeowners is my kids can't afford to do what I did, and I think this is you know, just Labour trying to highlight that. Look, we we get it. We are going to put in stuff, place to help you. Know, I think seventy percent is a, you know, whether it will be a good thing or not, it's it's, it's an ambitious target. You know, ambitious and inverted commas there. I don't quite see how you get there. Um, you know, I think in terms of making the housing market better for people. Um, you know what can you do practically i think you can do stuff on tenants rights you can do stuff on um, building more social housing and you should probably be looking at what can you do to change the mix of developers to ensure we've got more medium and small developers with varying interests rather than just the big ones and you can probably do some of that through the power of public procurement <laughs>
0: That was Duncan Weldon on the politics of housing supply. We'll be doing a full episode on the Yimby movement alongside the Georgists. Um, They're people who want a single land value tax. Uh, Some of the issues we touched upon here will be expanded on there. Um, If you've enjoyed this show, this episode and this series, please do consider becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. You can do so for as little as three pound a month. Gets you access to all the episodes of this series and future ones and also makes this show possible for now you've been listening to crash course with me michael walker crash course is produced and edited by lewis bassett and patrick herdman patrick herdman does the sound design